When I first heard of the coronavirus, I can remember thinking thoughts like, this is really not a big deal, this is all kind of blown out of proportion, and I remember kind of laughing and scoffing at the whole notion, just the simple thought of closing church or not allowing public masses or anything of that sort. And yet, even though I really thought this would not happen and this would, not, this would all kind of blow over before we had to cancel public masses, here we are today, Palm Sunday, yet again, with an empty church. And so the question yet again becomes, why are we doing this? What's going on here? Here we are, a people longing for the Eucharist, a people who desire nothing more than a physical unity with God, and a people who desire nothing more than to be in this church right now. How do we come to terms with that? How do you... Listeners, come to terms with the fact that you're going to spend Holy Week without being able to step foot inside of an Easter or Trudeau liturgy. Not being able to participate publicly in the worship of God. How do we reconcile that very sad fact? And I want to propose two ways in which maybe we can look upon this whole situation with a little bit more peace and recognize that there can still be peace even in this bizarre, sad situation. First way is to look at scripture. In today's verse before the gospel, it comes from Philippians chapter 2, 8 through 9. And it's St. Paul states very clearly, Christ became obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross. This obedience, as evidence in the gospel, caused him immense suffering. My dear friends, there can be no such thing as obedience without suffering. Obedience and suffering go hand in hand. Otherwise, we would not have to have religious, or or neither myself, we would not have to take vows or promises of obedience. If obedience did not cause suffering, then there would be no need for vows, there would be no need for promises, there would be no need for us to set our face like Flint and say, I will do this no matter what. The fact of the matter is, it does. Obedience causes all of us great pain. It's hard. It's hard to surrender our wills. It's hard to surrender our desires, especially that desire for the Eucharist. A good desire is far harder to surrender than a bad one. And this is a good desire that you all have. Christ himself desired clearly by this passion to remain and stay and and, and remain alive. He clearly had a desire not to hand himself over and die. He clearly suffered. In fact, that's what the the, the word passion means, to suffer greatly. That's what Christ had to undergo. And yet the suffering that he experienced was not a suffering of helplessness, but a suffering of surrender. It was very, very clear that Christ had the power to get out of this situation. That Christ had the power to fight and Christ had the power to win. What does he say in today's gospel? He says, do you not think I can call upon my father and he will not provide me at this moment with 12 legions of angels? Give you an idea. There are 6,000 soldiers in a legion. If you have 12 legions, that's 72,000 soldiers. And Jesus is prepared 
and is able to summon 72,000 of those in angelic form. To give you an idea on how much power that is, it only took one angel to almost destroy Jerusalem. And the only reason why he didn't was because God told him not to. My dear friends, Jesus is approaching this situation not from a position of weakness, but from a position of power, willing to surrender that power and to give it up. All in the name of obedience. And the reality is, my dear friends, you have power as well. You have the power to resent this situation. You have the power to go public on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and yell and complain about me, about the bishop, about the church, about the diocese for canceling these masses, for preventing you from entering the church and for causing this problem. This problem of not being able to receive the Eucharist. That power is well within your grasp. You have it. And you know what? You can use it. You can very well use it. God gives you permission. He gives me permission by not preventing us from doing so. And yet, and yet, while we might have that power to do that, we might have that power to, to act on our hatred and commit slander, we also have the power to surrender. And my dear friends, that is key. That is key to being at peace with this situation. Being obedient to what the church is asking us to do, whether we agree with it or not. This is the situation we're in. No resentment, no slander, no gossip is going to change that. And so the best foot forward or the best way to go is not a matter of resenting the bishop or resenting the church or being angry about the fact that we can't come to Mass. No, the best step forward is surrendering that power. Surrendering the power that we have to be resentful, surrendering the power we have to be angry, and instead embracing the reality that Jesus has placed us in. Because in this reality, we can grow in holiness nowhere else. Everything else is fantasy. The second way, though, that we can be at peace with this situation is to look at the past. What historians will tell you to be at peace with the present is to look at the past. And I want to give you two examples of the past that can give us hope and inspiration in these times. Whenever these first churches were first closed, a lot of people came to me saying, "Why? what's the precedent for this? I mean, don't we need God more than anything? Why are we doing this? What's the point? I need Jesus. We're caring for our bodies. What about our souls? And you know, that bothered me until, until this week, the Holy Sepulchre closed. I don't know if you guys know what a big deal that is. The Holy Sepulchre has not closed for the past 700 years. The last time the Holy Sepulchre closed, much less for Easter week, Holy Week, this is the time the Holy Sepulchre, by the way, the Holy Sepulchre is the place where Jesus, the, the church built around the, the place where Jesus died and rose from the dead. Calvary, where he was crucified, is right next to the place of the resurrection, right? The, the graveyard is right nearby. They didn't, they didn't have to carry the body far. It's right next to it. And the whole big church in, in Jerusalem was built over it. And that church has been in operation since the fourth century. And for the first time in 700 years, it's closed to visitors. The last time it was closed to visitors was during the Black Death, the plague, the bubonic plague, which scourged, scourged the entire Mediterranean world. My point being, if the Holy Sepulchre can close, it shows that there is a precedent for this. 
This is not the church just apostatizing and losing the faith. This is not the church losing her soul. It's not the church abandoning Jesus. No. This is the church recognizing that she needs to take care of the bodies of her people and she can't be a vessel of contagion for other people to be infected by a horrible virus that could ultimately kill them. We as fathers must be fathers to our children, not just spiritually, but sometimes physically. And that's what the church is doing by not allowing public masses. And that's why the Holy Sepulchre closed for the first time in 700 years to, in order to keep her sheep safe. In order to keep her sheep safe. But the fact of the matter is, even though there's a precedent for this, even though we might desire priests to go underground and start handing out the Eucharist, even though we desire these, these things to change, how do we go forth knowing that we can't receive the Eucharist for the next, maybe until April 30th, maybe even longer? How are we to go forth knowing we probably won't be able to attend a public mass for a very long time, at least for the rest of this month? And for that, I want to point out to one more example from history. And that example is called the Miracle of the Orient. The Miracle of the Orient. My dear friends, in 1549, a man by the name of St. Francis Xavier, a Jesuit priest, a Jesuit missionary, one of the, one of the famous missionaries of all of the, the Western civilization, one of the famous missionaries of the world, landed in Japan. And he began to baptize and evangelize the Japanese people. And he found a people more susceptible to faith than any people he'd ever encountered. He found that the Chinese people were nothing compared to the Japanese and much less the Indians. These people were hungry for God. And baptism after baptism after baptism, he accrued a Catholic community numbering a quarter of a million converts within a mere few decades. Him and his band of Jesuits and French Franciscans came together and started a tidal wave of Christianity amongst the Japanese island. Japanese Catholicism was absolutely flourishing until the year 1587, when the Shinto government, the Shinto emperor, began a powerful, methodical persecution of all Christians through blackmail, tortures, and crucifixions. The most famous crucifixion happened around the 15, late 1580s in Nagasaki. There were 26 martyrs crucified in Nagasaki. Six missionaries, 20 Japanese Catholics. And my dear friends, this persecution was so thorough and so effective that by the mid-17th century, all the priests and missionaries had been banished from the country, marking the end of publicly practiced Catholicism. This story, if you want to see like just a basic story of what happened and how they went about doing this, you can read the book Silence by Sushiko Endo. And what happened was after the, the mid-17th century, the Japanese Christians had to make a decision. Do we apostatize? Do we go and become Shinto like we're being forced to do? Or do we go underground? And you, you know, the world never knew. Because the, the, the Japanese government decided to close all of Japan off to trade from the West. They never really knew whatever happened to the Japanese Christians. And for the next 300 years, the, the, the fate of the Japanese Christians hung in total, utter mystery to Western civilization. 
There was just no clue, no hint. We had no idea whatever became of him. Until March 17th, 1865. Japan had just a decade earlier allowed trade with, Western, with the Western nations through an American influence. Commodore Perry went into, the, into the, the Bay of Tokyo and began to talk them into opening themselves up to the Western world. And because of that, Westerners started pouring into Japan, into Japan. They started demanding freedom, religious freedom, and the Japanese government allowed it. So priests started coming in and building churches after churches, all for the Westerners already settled there. And there was a priest by the name of Bernard Pettijon, and he rebuilt the church of Nagasaki. Nagasaki was known as the, as the Little Rome. It was, it was kind of the Christian hub before the Shinto government came and took it over. And he had rebuilt this church. And on March 17th, 1865, 15 Japanese natives came to him and said, we are the same faith as you. Where can we find an image of St. Mary? We are the same faith as you. Where can we find the image of Mary? My dear friends, it turns out that these 15 Japanese natives were actually descendants of faith of St. Francis Xavier, who came to the island 400 years prior to that moment, which means that they had spent the past 300 years hiding and passing on the faith from one generation to the next with nothing more than prayer and the sacrament of baptism. That's it. They had no clergy, so they had no confession. They had no anointing. They had no, no church marriages. They had no confirmation. They had no ordination. They didn't have any sacraments. And believe it or not, even though they had no sacraments, they were able to hand on the faith to the point where entire generations of Japanese natives had never even met a priest. But they knew of these mysterious men. They knew of these celibate men who did not take wives, who were allied to the Pope of Rome, and who could do and practice this thing called the Eucharist. They, heard, they knew about it. They passed that on from one generation to the next. And because of that, that domestic church, the ability to foster the faith within their homes, they were able to hold out for 300 years. And that's why Pius IX looks upon that day, March 17th, 1865, and calls it the miracle of the Orient. Because these hidden Christians who went hundreds of years without the Eucharist came back to the Catholic Church and the, the numbers of the Catholic Church began to swell to the point by the time Father Bernard Pettijon died in, eight, in the 1870s, his congregation, his diocese has, had swelled up to 30,000 Catholics, most of which were Japanese. So my dear friends, what does this show us? This shows us that God can still work miracles in the hearts of his children, so long as they have faith. And my dear friends, he's looking to work a miracle in you. He's we're looking to work a miracle in me, and he's not going to abandon us. Yes, we might not have the Eucharist, 
but there have been saints that have gone before us that have spent much longer without the Eucharist. Yes, we might have had to have Mass, but these men and women went 300 years without Mass, and they maintained the faith. My dear friends, don't lose hope, because there's no reason to do so. Because even though we might not be here in the physical presence of God, he's still there spiritually. He's there spiritually for you. He's there spiritually for me. And he will not abandon us so long as we have faith. And so on this Palm Sunday, hold your head up high, knowing full well that you are a child of God and that God will take care of you through this trial, no matter what.